You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hello everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this week's episode, we look back at the first ever Pan-Continental Championships that took place last week in Calgary. My guests are EJ Harnden of Team Gushu, who has been on quite a roll with his new team to start this season. And my other guest is Jessica Smith, skip of Team New Zealand, who helped qualify her country for their first ever Women's Worlds. Yet... That was by far only the second biggest victory for Jessica over the past couple of years. All that and more on this week's episode of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. Hello, everyone. Before we get you to the Pan Continental Championships, let's catch you up on some of the other major results in curling last week. Congratulations goes out to Team Schuster of the United States, who were off to a difficult start this season before going to Penticton, BC and winning the title in an event with one of the toughest international fields of the year outside of the slams, defeating Team Dunstone of Manitoba in the final. Meanwhile, in mixed doubles, Nancy Martin and Tyler Griffin won the Ali Jenkins Memorial in Saskatoon, defeating Laura Walker and and Kirk Myers in the championship final. Now, as for the Pan-Continental Championships, Team Fujisawa of Japan won the inaugural title by defeating Team Ha of Korea in the final, while Canada's Team Anderson finished third, winning the bronze medal game over Team Peterson of the United States. All four playoff teams qualified directly for this season's World Championship, which left a fifth spot up for grabs among the remaining teams in Calgary. It was New Zealand, skipped by our first guest this week, Jessica Smith, who earned that spot and it made for an incredible moment. Not only had Smith led her team to New Zealand's first ever spot in the World Women's Championship, but she did so a little more than a year after undergoing six months of chemotherapy in her battle against Hodgkin's lymphoma. Jess, uh, you and your teammates became the first team to qualify New Zealand for a World Women's Curling Championship. Tell me how it felt when the number crunching was done and you first found out that you'd be guaranteed a spot at the Worlds in Sweden next March. Yeah, I mean, like, it was so exciting. Um, it was probably, like, a delayed reaction because we we played our game against Australia and we didn't know that if we'd won that game there and then that that would be, you know, our ticket to the world. Um, we thought that we still had to beat Brazil um, or, you know, win at least one more game the following day. So um, we weren't sure at the time that, you know, that was that was it. So uh, we got back to the hotel and one of the girls looked on Facebook and there we were <laughs> from World Curling saying that we are qualified. And we didn't believe it at first. We are like, are you sure? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were, we were excited. But obviously we still had a couple more games to play and we didn't want to celebrate too early. <laughs> so you played your first game versus Canada and I'm sure there were nerves involved, but how important was it to play that first game, get used to the ice, get the nerves out of the way and do it in a game where a loss versus Canada was likely not going to hurt you too much in your efforts to qualify for Worlds? Um, definitely, yeah. No, we talked about it. Um, before the competition, like we only had maybe two and a half, three weeks um, notice that we we're actually going to be playing in the A division. Um, and when we found out that we we're playing Canada first, we said, "Like that's great um, because we can 
figure things out. Um, we'll we'll just go out there and have fun. And yeah, no, it was it was good to get that game out of the way. Um, and we were just excited to play Canada because we've we've never done that before. So um, yeah, no, it was it was good. There's an old saying in different sports that just that the most important thing in a big tournament like the Pan Continental Championship is to quote unquote hold serve. In your case, holding serve meant defeating Australia, Kazakhstan, Brazil, and Hong Kong because it was doubtful that any of those teams were going to beat any of the four other countries in the event. Those making the playoffs: Japan, the United States, Canada, and Korea. Was your team mindful of that in Calgary? I realize you wanted to win each game, but at the end of the day, were you particularly focused on those games against the teams that you? you would likely be competing with you for that final spot at the women's worlds in march in sweden oh yeah for sure like it was almost like a competition within a competition like um we knew that to make it we had to beat you know um kazakhstan australia brazil um yeah we we knew that if we didn't beat those teams that we we wouldn't be getting that fifth spot so um that was our focus was was to beat those teams um and then you know for the other games against um korea um japan usa canada like we just use those games as learning experience um because yeah we we knew that we probably weren't up to that caliber just yet um like we we don't play on arena ice very often um we had to sort of work out um, work out our releases a little bit and um, learn how to play on a bit more swingy ice. Um, it was definitely a bit of a challenge, um, but we did sort of um, get better at it um, towards the end of the competition, I'd say. So you just mentioned the ice being swingy in Calgary, Jess, and I was wondering if there was anywhere in New Zealand where you could approximate ice like that, where she could be prepared to be a little bit swingier than the ice you might be used to in order to help teams prepare for a, a world championship or a pan-continental championship. No, not really. We don't, yeah. We've got the um, the curling club in Naseby. That's where most of us um, originate from. Um, but it's, yeah, it doesn't definitely does not swing <laughs> as much as arena rice. So there's only so much that you can, yeah, you can't really work on outcomes or shots like that in Naseby if you're trying to work on your release um, at the same time. So Now you've been playing off and on with your current teammates for a number of years now. How nice was it to qualify for that first women's worlds for New Zealand alongside other women that have shared a lot of that journey with you. Yeah, well, Holly and I, um, so Holly's my third. She, like, we have played juniors together um, for many, many years. And um, a few years ago, before COVID and everything, um, we played with Bridget at the Pacific Ages, and that was in Australia. So we've, we've played together, but not all together like all four of us um, until this year. So it was fun. Um, yeah, took a bit to to work each other out um, with our delivery and um, all the rest of it. So 
For once, Jesse, it would appear that the fact that New Zealand's seasons are opposite to the ones in the Northern Hemisphere was beneficial to you on the curling front as you headed to the event in Calgary fresh off your winter season. Is it safe to say you were able to get a lot of practice time prior to traveling to the Pancontinental Championship? Yeah, we did get to practice a little bit. Um, we're a bit spread out now. Um, I live um, three and a half hour drive from Naseby and Holly lives two plane rides away from Naseby now. So when we could all get together, we did. But otherwise, we yeah we didn't get together as often as we had hoped. Um, just you know, it's hard when we we've got family lives and um, and work commitments um because we yeah we uh, all our curling is self-funded um we had to fund everything ourselves to get here um so we did a lot of fundraising as well now given what you just told me jess uh, and i realized that this would have been a little cost prohibitive for you but i i was wondering if uh, you had perhaps given thought of playing a tune-up event in Canada before the Pan-Continental Championship. Because I, I, I can appreciate that your situations are much different from theirs, uh, from a funding perspective, but I, I do know, as an example, that uh, the team representing Korea uh, played in 10 events in Europe and North America prior to arriving in Calgary. Now, I, I realize that playing 10 events would not be realistic for your team, both from a, a funding perspective and the fact that you all have full-time jobs outside of curling in New Zealand, but I'm just wondering if there was some thought put in into perhaps playing one event uh, in Canada before heading to Calgary. Um, yeah, so we we did talk about it. Uh, we did um, spend almost a week in Vancouver, and we trained out of um, Richmond um, before we came to Calgary. So we we did a little bit of training, and we had some great practice games against some teams in Vancouver. But yeah, we didn't get any competitions in which would have been nice, but it was just, it was going to be too much time off work for a lot of us. So Jess, uh, 2020 was a difficult year for many people as uh, everyone around the world uh, had to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. If that wasn't enough, in uh, 2020, you received news that someone of your age group in particular probably never thinks they will have to deal with when you found out that you had Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer that many people in our audience might remember as a cancer that forced hockey legend Mario Lemieux to miss almost a year of action midway through his career. Can you take our audience back to how you first found out what you were dealing with and what you did to help keep yourself going during the hard months of treatment? Yeah, so basically round about when COVID hit, um, so around, you know, sort of March, April, in 2020, um, I felt I was, I was really tired. Um, I didn't, I like, I thought maybe I was run down. Like I'm a nurse, I do shift work and I thought, you know, everything's just, it's, it's, um, making me tired and the fatigue just didn't go away. Um, no matter how much rest I got. So I, like I do my, I try my hardest at everything and the curling season that year, obviously it's a different time of the year to Canadian curling season. So we're, you know, sort of curling around um, June, July, August. Um, so we're, I was playing in the nationals and the mixed doubles and things like that and just really struggling to, <laughs> struggling to get by, but um, I fought hard to, to play in those competitions. I went 
I went to my uh, doctor and sort of thought, you know, something's not quite right here. Um, and that was in, in September. And it took about three months and doing blood tests and other patients to actually um, get a diagnosis. And I think because I was quite young, um, like you never really think, you know, you're going to have cancer at age 23. So when you, <laughs> you know, anyone that um, has symptoms or whatever, you, you, you first protocol is probably to Google, isn't it? So, um, but you don't want to go down that cancer path that, you know, um, well, maybe it's, maybe it's cancer, but so I, I try not to do that um, at all and try to think of any other explanation that it could be. But over Christmas time, it, it came to a point where, where I couldn't actually go to work. Um, I was feeling very, very unwell um, and the doctor sent me for a chest X-ray, which um, showed a, a bit of a lump in my chest. Um, so I was sent down to the the hospital where I work. I was I was with my family at the time, um, spending Christmas with them. Um, so I got sent to the hospital and was admitted over Christmas, um, and had scans. And that's when I found out that I had a um, a 10 by 15 centimetre mass in my chest. So that's that was lovely Christmas morning news. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, ended up getting biopsies and finding out that it was Hodgkin's lymphoma over the new year. And so 2021 was, was a big year. Um, had six months of chemotherapy, so I had... Um, chemo every two weeks and yeah so I couldn't work I couldn't curl I was yeah um, out for that season Um, but I still managed to go along and watch um, support my my brother he he curls as well Um, and the rest of my um, teammates who I'm curling with now yeah, you couldn't keep me away from the curling rink. <laughs> How important was that for you, Jess? The ability to get to the curling club and spend time cheering on your brother and your teammates, even if you had to do it from the stands. I, I'm assuming it served as a good distraction for you at a time where, where most of your focus was likely on your treatment and the everyday challenges that come with going through six months of chemotherapy. Yeah, like the, the curling community in New Zealand was amazing. Um, the amount of people that reached out to me... Um, with their own stories as well um, of having cancer um, was phenomenal. I, I was I felt privileged to be part of such a, an awesome um, community. So um, it meant the world that I could still still be there, still um, cheer on all the players and um, support everyone that was that was there playing. I yeah I. Um, I don't like sitting on the sidelines. I like to be involved. I <laughs> I get really nervous watching curling um, when I'm when I'm cheering for someone. I yeah I don't get as nervous when I'm playing, which is which is weird. <laughs> now I've often heard athletes uh, that have gone through health uh, challenges similar to yours, Jess, uh, that being away from the sport they love for an extended period of time provides them with a fresh perspective. Uh, did you come back to the sport of curling with a different perspective after battling Hodgkin's lymphoma? Definitely. I was, I was way more motivated um, to get back and get 
get back to the level that I was playing at before I um, got unwell. Um, yeah, I it gave me so much motivation. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I don't want to ever be sitting there watching again. <laughs> so um, I had my last chemotherapy and about three weeks later I was um, I was back out there having a few having a few slides and trying to get my muscle tone back again um, because you know after six months of basically doing nothing um, I had barely any fitness and yeah barely any strength to, to slide out of the hack so <laughs> um, it took a lot of work and, and practice um, but here I am a year and a half later and um, I think yeah I I just really wanted to to be back out there and curling on the world stage again. That awesome. that was my goal that I had, and I've achieved it. So I'm pretty happy. <laughs> so as mentioned earlier, Jess, the Women's Worlds are scheduled for March in Sweden. How pumped are you to make your way to Sweden to represent New Zealand at a World Women's Championship? Oh, I'm very excited. The girls are excited too. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be great. It's great for New Zealand curling. Um, it's great that the men qualified as well. So yeah, it's it's awesome. And to be the first woman's team to do that, it means a lot. Go so out there, we'll, we'll give it a, a great shot and um, see what we can do. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, New Zealand is just about to enter its summer season, so I'm wondering just how accessible ice will be for your team to help you prepare for the Women's Worlds in March. Yes. Um, so luckily for us, um, Naseby, uh, the Naseby Curling Rink, they are open all year round. So the rank makes most of its money off tourists um, coming to to have a go um, at curling and um, to have that curling experience. That because um, it's it's rare in New Zealand. <laughs> There's only you know one one and a half dedicated curling ranks in the whole country. Yeah, so during the summer that that's the busiest season. Um, there's a lot of biking trails that go around the area, um, so people come and they they bike and um, they they have their holiday houses and they come and they come and try curling. So we do have access to ice over the summer, which is is really lucky for us. And finally, Jess, you've also had success outside of women's curling, having qualified for the World Mixed Doubles with your brother before the Worlds were cancelled due to COVID nineteen. Are there plans for the two of you to give it another go? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we after you know the first year um, COVID got cancelled, so. Um, the year after that, which is actually the year that I was, I was feeling pretty unwell, we we qualified. Um, was it in Aberdeen? I think we quali- we'd qualified for that as well. Um, but obviously, I found out that I was unwell and um, we couldn't go to that one. So, I definitely it's definitely a goal to make it to a world mixed doubles, well, or a qualifier. Um, it's New Zealand uh, have dropped back down to the B grade now. But yeah, it's it's definitely a goal of ours is to get there one day, just just so that we can experience that. You know, we we didn't get that chance, so definitely, yeah. The men's event at the Pan Continental Championship was almost a carbon copy of the women's event in that the same five countries qualified for the next World Championships. The difference on the men's side was Canada's Team Gushu won the championship, defeating Team Young of Korea in the final, while Team Dropkin of the United States took home bronze with a win against Team Yanagisawa of Japan. 
The Pan-Continental Championships marked the first ever time that E.J. Harden wore the Maple Leaf on his back as a regular team member since the 2014 Winter Olympics where he won gold as a member of Team Jacobs. E.J. joined from the hack this week to discuss his team's big win in Calgary and to discuss his transition to Team Gushu after playing so many years with Brad Jacobs and his brother Ryan. So, EJ, there may have been a little bit less on the line for you in the remainder of Team Gushu than there was for Team Anderson at the Pan-Continental Championship, given that Ottawa is hosting the Men's Worlds this season, so Canada was already guaranteed a spot at Worlds. That said, it had to feel good winning the event for Canada and also ensuring that your team will now go down in history as the first-ever Pan-Continental Champions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that was one thing <clears throat> that we talked about before the event started was, you know, it being a new event and it'd be, you know, pretty special and kind of cool to, to be the first team to, to win it. Um, so definitely had that sort of in, in the back of our minds um, before we started the event and, you know, throughout. And, and then again, anytime that you put on the Maple Leaf and you're representing your country, you know, you want to perform well for yourself and for your team. And most importantly um, for your country, you know, with that Maple Leaf represented on on your uniform and uh there's always a lot of pride and, and gratitude uh whenever you have that opportunity so you you want to make the most of it and um you you want to kind of capitalize on that opportunity and and perform at your very best and i think we did a a good job of that uh you know that last week in the championship final eg your team put a lot of pressure on the koreans from the very start of the game was that the strategy for your team to put as much pressure as you could and force their back end into as many difficult shots as possible especially early in the game yeah, you know what, actually, I mean, it, it was kind of a twofold sort of strategy. The, the ice was, was really good um, throughout the event, but we definitely noticed that it was it was breaking down um, uh, kind of as as the game went on in, in the later ends where, you know, touch shots were a, a little harder to, to make and, and to, to put exactly where you want them. So precision shots were definitely a little more difficult than they normally are um, as the game went on. And, and as the ice sort of broke down, it, it started to get a little bit uh, slower and, and definitely, you know, patchier across the sheet where you had multiple kind of sort of different speeds. And sometimes it would curl a little more than you thought, so on and so forth. So really we kind of learned from the, from the U S game um, in order to like, when we had control either, if we had hammer, then, you know, definitely wanted to force the play uh, in order to get off to a quick start. And if we didn't, uh, again, wanted to sort of force the play to, to either, you know, take that hammer back as, as soon as we could and, and start to, to dictate the sort of the, the style of play. And so it wasn't so much about who we were playing. Um, it was just kind of our strategy overall, which was we wanted to come out strong, uh, be precise early, sort of be able to, to put some pressure on the, on, on the teams, get control. And that sort of would allow us then to dictate the, the style of play where more than likely if we're ahead, you know, teams are going to have to sort of play those those delicate touch shots or, you know, in, in some cases, you know, harder run back, so on and so forth um, to try to catch up. And, and so that re was really the strategy was was to get off to a quick start and, and uh, sort of, you know, be aggressive uh, early with uh, regardless of who we were playing. EJ, you've now played in a bunch of Briars, a uh, few Olympic trials, a world championship in the Olympics. Uh, do you prefer playing the other top teams in an event early like you did in Calgary? I mean, by the fourth draw in Calgary, you'd already played against the U.S., Japan, and the Koreans. Or would you ideally prefer to have some tough games later on in the event or perhaps have tough games sprinkled throughout the uh, the schedule? I mean, 
<clears throat> the easy sort of cliche answer is like, you have to be, it doesn't really matter. Like whatever is, is in front of you, you have to be prepared for. And, but I would say you can, you can use that to your advantage either way. Right. I mean, if, if you have some tough teams right off the start, I think it's always really nice because it, you have to be focused and ready to go and, and make sure you're, you're at your very best right away. Uh, and so sometimes it's it sort of, you know, enhances uh, how quickly you're, you're sort of getting into the swing of things and, um, and being at your very best when you have to, you know, play some of those top teams, uh, you know, right off the start. And then other times, you know, when you, when you have some of the tougher teams a little bit later, it kind of gives you the ability to, to get into the swing of things, get, a, a, you know, a handle on the ice. Um, get a little more comfortable, so on and so forth. So I think really at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, for me, there's no preference. I, I'd like to think that at the very beginning from that first game, um, you're ready to go and, and um, it doesn't matter who you play. But I, I think, again, it's, it's really what, whatever your mindset is. So for me, it's, there's no real preference there. Um, obviously, regardless, Again, the ice, you know, some people would say, well, it's nice to get a handle on the ice. Well, every team has to do that. So whether you're playing a top team or, or not, um, you know, it's, then it becomes how quickly can you adjust if, if the ice is, is a little tricky uh, versus that other team. So I, I really don't have a preference either way. I, I, I like to sort of try to uh, limit, you know, distractions and focus on the things that I can control. And, and the schedule is, is one of those things that I can't control. Um, so it doesn't become something that I'm mindful of or, or thinking about uh, going into a competition. So there was a lot of talk, EJ, on the, the TSN broadcast about how some of the less experienced teams at the event may have been a little less predictable from a strategic perspective than some of the teams you typically play at a slam or a briar. Did those peculiar strategic moves force you guys to adapt on the fly at all? And the second part of my question is whether it's fun playing in games like that when you don't necessarily get the approach to the game that you're used to when you're playing against some of the top teams at a Grand Slam or a World Championship or a regular tour event. Yeah, I don't think it changes anything. I mean, like you said, sometimes you're, you know, you might look at something, well, I don't know, maybe we wouldn't have played that, but interesting. And so I think it's a good learning opportunity. I mean, I like to think more often than not, we have a pretty good handle on, on how to sort of call the game and play the game and, you know, shot selection and so on and so forth. But every so often, I mean, there might be something that you, you see and you're like, huh, never really thought about that. Or, you know, that's an interesting way to approach it. I don't think really, you know, we saw anything out there that we were too surprised at um, or would, you know, look, make us sort of look at how we approach the game any differently. Um, but to your point, I just think it's, it's nice – change to to play some different teams you know get to uh go up against uh different players and 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 you know sometimes different styles and uh because we are so used to playing a lot of the same team so this was it was refreshing and uh from that standpoint where you know you got to see new players and new teams and and compete against them so you know that was definitely a an enjoyable aspect of of this event as as well so, EJ, where do you stand when it comes to having an A division and a B division at events like the Pan-Continental Championship? I know that some people argue that it would be good for newer curling nations like Nigeria, India, Kenya, and, and, and the other ones that, that we saw uh, in Calgary to get a chance to compete against Canada and the U.S. and Japan and other more established curling nations because it would allow them to learn firsthand from these higher-ranked teams. Whereas other people will argue that it's best for the newer curling nations to, to be competing amongst themselves with the possibility of qualifying for the A division being the prize for playing well in B division. Where do you stand on that debate? 
I personally like the the split of, of A and B divisions. I think there's you know a few different things there. I, I think it allows teams that are still starting out to gain some confidence and, and play competition that was you know closer to their to their level. It also gives them you know sort of a, an incentive, right, and a bit of a path to say you know like if we continue to develop, we can go from B to A. And and vice versa, it, it keeps teams wanting to to continue to develop that or an A because the goal is we want to stay in A or we want to make the world championships or we want to win this uh, versus, you know, dropping down to, to B and having to make your way, you know, that climb back up again. So I, I like the the split. I like the two different sort of groupings. I think it's worked well in, in other sports. And, and I think for curling, especially with some – some countries that are just starting to sort of develop, I think it's a good way for them to come into the sport and, and, and come into international competition and be able to get, you know, a good sense of what it's like and, and what's required in order to, uh, to be competitive. Um, so I, I like it. I, I think there's opportunities for those teams, regardless of who they're playing to learn. And even if they don't get to play, say team Canada or us or some of the other you know sort of top country top countries in the pan-continental um competition they still have the opportunity to come and watch right and and we saw that there was uh, i noticed definitely at a number of games especially the playoffs there was there's quite a few teams there watching and so they get the opportunity to to watch us live and sort of study in terms of you know, maybe how we're throwing the rock or, or strategy or, you know, just kind of watching us on the ice and in terms of how we, you know, potentially communicate or carry ourselves and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I think there's still a lot of benefit to, to to having the two groupings and then the opportunity to, to learn and, and, and get some, some great experience um, without having to play, say, ourselves or some of the other um, teams in Group A, or 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 even some of the teams in Group A, I think it's a group, obviously a great opportunity for them to play other really competitive countries, and especially Canada, right? Because we know, and more than likely, we saw it. Even though we had some games that you know definitely were a little lopsided, we got the best out of quite a few of those teams when, in comparison to watching them play maybe some others, because they were so pumped up to play us and and wanted to sort of have that opportunity and really enjoyed it and, and wanted to, to, you know, to give us everything they had. And, and in many cases we did receive that. So that was, that was nice to see as well. Um, so overall, I think it's great having those two groupings. And I think it's really great for our sport, you know, outside of North America to have all these other countries getting interested and, in, and, in, and putting teams together and starting programs and starting from, from the bottom, which is going to take a, a number of years to, to continue to develop. But I think it's great to see our sport continue to sort of evolve and, and, and gain awareness and popularity outside of just here in Canada and, and North America. So, EJ, you'd previously represented Canada at the Olympics and the World Championships, but I don't think you'd worn the Maple Leaf in several years. Can you talk about getting the chance to wear that Maple Leaf again in Calgary at the Penn Continental Championship? Yeah, it's, it's you know... We, I've had obviously a good amount of success, uh, you know, and our team has had a good amount of success um, between winning the the Olympics in 2014 and until you know now this this new uh, team that I'm a part of. But the unfortunate piece that goes along with that is is I haven't really had the opportunity to represent Canada in a number of years. As you know, we've either lost prior finals or you know lost in the playoffs and and so on and so forth and. 
So I, I got a little bit of a taste of that um, when I was fortunate enough to go with with Brad Gushu and, and the team uh, to the Worlds as as their fifth, uh, and that was that was quite special because as you mentioned, it had been quite some some time, and uh, you know I kind of joked with the guys about that too. I'm like, oh, this is you know this is nice, you know I, I missed this, um, but now to 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 have the opportunity to represent your country and, and be on the ice competing, I mean that's always different right it's you know you're out there and you're playing and um it's definitely a different feeling so that was that was really refreshing and and um something I, I really enjoyed I know for me I mean I still have a lot of passion for this game I, I I love it I love this sport and um and I love playing I love competing I love training and there's there's so much that I love about it but more than anything there's you know for me a big reason why I wanted to continue to play was I, I still felt like I had some things left to do and, and winning Canadian championships and, and getting to a, a couple more um, world championships and potentially one more Olympics is, is right up there at, at, at the top of the list. And so that was, you know, a nice sort of, uh, you know, opportunity and starting point to, to feel what it's like to represent your country again. And for me, I want to definitely do that a, a few more times before my uh, play days are over. So, EJ, I want to take you back to last season for a minute. Uh, many people are interested in the process that leads to the creation of new lineups at the end of an Olympic cycle. Can you briefly describe the period between the time that Team Jacobs announced he was splitting up and the moment you were formally announced as a new member of Team Gushu? I'm wondering if there were moments of uncertainty there for you uh, before you were approached by Team Gushu. Yeah, you know what I have to have to say was... I've never been through the process. So it, it was really interesting for me because, um, you know, fortunately for me, I've, I've never really had to really, I guess, all, all that much worry about it, right, and and have to sort of go through it and, and think about it. Um, and in this case, it was extremely easy and a lot easier than I, you know, than I thought it might be. Just, not, again, the uncertainty of, of, you know, what it's like and what it, you know, what you're going to have to go through and so on and so forth, everything that goes along with, you know, looking at starting with a new team or trying to figure out what your future looks like. It was, I kind of, you know, had a, an idea of, of where I, you know, wanted to, to go if, if I was going to continue to play and, and uh, you know, it not be with the team that I was uh, with and, um brad and those guys were thinking the same thing so honestly it came together extremely easy i it really didn't uh go beyond a, a few conversations and it didn't take a whole lot of time um and so for me I, i'm really fortunate that you know <laughs> my vision was the same as theirs and it came together really easy so the broadcasters uh, mentioned on air uh, during the Pan-Continental Championships that you were having to tweak your release a little bit so that it would be closer to the way the remainder of Team Gushu releases the rock. Is that still a work in progress for you, EJ, or do you feel like you're getting there? No, it's still a work in progress. I mean, um, there's definitely gains and um, times where it feels really good, but there's that, and there's times where, you know, I've thrown it the same way for quite a few years that you kind of revert back to what you know right especially in games when you're just trying to make shots and so for me it's it's definitely still a work in progress I would say it's getting there I mean I've and and I still think it's going to take some time and there's going to be some games where I'm at the level where I expect to be at and where I would like to be at and then there's other games where maybe I'm not quite there but uh it's getting closer and closer you know like Fredericton was uh was pretty good I thought I played well, considering, you know, right then and there, I was making those changes, you know, shortly before that, uh, when we had a training camp, 
before the event. Um, the la- you know, the slam in, in North Bay, we won, but I, I, I probably can't count the number of times I apologize to the guys <laughs> because it's probably as bad as I could have played. Um, and nowhere near what, you know, I would like for myself and what I expect for myself. And then the, you know, the slam after that in Grand Prairie. And then this last event, it was starting to get a little bit better and, and more consistent. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think it's going to take a little bit of time. I think more than anything, like I, I, I know what I need to do and, and I know how to do it. Um, it's I think more than anything, just the reps now that we have a little bit more time to, to practice. Um, and I can continue to sort of drill that muscle memory of, of what I want to feel and how I want to throw it, um, you know, get that sort of drilled in. And, and then I think that's definitely going to help. And then the other thing I think is just is confidence. I, I would say, you know, f- you know, as you're changing things, you know, you're and then you're trying to sort of implement it in the, in, in the game. I mean, more often than not, you'd love to just be able to focus on making the shot. Right now, I'm, I'm, you know, going through a few more things than I normally would. Obviously, trying to be mindful of how I want to throw it, and you know, my line of delivery, and so on and so forth. So that's it's starting to get there where I'm, I'm not thinking about as much. Um, but it's just, you know, it has a bit of a, an impact on your confidence. I would say right now, I'm, I'm probably, you know, not throwing it as you know, with as much confidence as I normally would, I'm getting really close. And, and I know that, you know, now seeing, you know, the re- sort of the result of, of what I'm doing and the changes that I'm making, I, I, I believe that this is going to make me a more consistent player. And, and you know, I, I consider myself, you know, to be one of the top players at my position. I feel like I've done that for, for a number of years. And, and I still feel I, you know, having said that, I still feel like there's, there's more, in me and I and there's another level that I can get to I think uh and I, I believe I'll get there because of this and that's the great thing I just you know kind of segueing into the you know Brad and and the guys in this new team is um you know the level of detail and precision that they sort of implement into everything they do is is pretty um is pretty special you get sort of a really quick sort of indication as to why they've been so successful and more importantly so consistent uh, for such a long period of time. And, and uh, now, you know, being on the inside of it, you, you kind of get an understanding of why that is. The other piece too, is, you know, obviously it makes it easier for me to, to, to change cause I'm the only one um, in order to get on the same line. It makes it a lot easier for the sweepers, you know, to, so they can see that same sort of line and, and, and same speed for Brad to be able to put the broom in the same spot. There's lots of reasons as to why it makes sense. But I think, you know, even more more than that is just their level of, of patience and care uh, with me. You know, they've been nothing but, you know, uh, great in terms of being supportive and patient and knowing that there's going to be times where, you know, they're going to get, the you know, my best and other times where it, it may not be. Um, but they know that at a point in time, everything's going to come together as well. And, and I also believe it's, you know, it goes to, again, show why they've been so successful because, you know, as much as everyone's concerned about themselves and and being at their best, they're also, you know, very concerned, not concerned, but they're also uh, aware and and wanting to get the best out of everyone else and and help and do whatever is needed in order to sort of um, help get them there. And, And so in this case, it's, it's pretty cool because I mean, you know, it'd be easy for, for them to, you know, get frustrated sometimes or, you know, not, you know, help and, and be as supportive as, as they are, but it's, it, it's been easy and, 
Um, I think, you know, because of how frustrating it's been for me at times, you know, their support and their confidence and their trust in me has allowed me to sort of bounce back really quickly and, and know that probably in the next number of months, um, everything's going to be right where I, I want it to be. And, I, and again, going back to what I said, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, I think I'm going to be a better player because of it. So EJ, one of the things that many people seem to underappreciate on teams at your level is communication. I'm sure Team Gushu uh, communicate differently than Team Jacobs did, whether that's how they go about their split times, when Brad, Mark, and Jeff want information, and what they like to hear as they're setting up to throw rocks. How long did it take you to get a grasp of what Team Gushu likes to communicate during games and when? Yeah, you know what? And and again, going back to, you know, just their, their level of preparation and, and um, precision and, and sort of attention to detail. I mean, right away, those were conversations that we had, right? And, you know, for myself and for them, it's like, so, you know, what what does everyone need, right? Individually, collectively, um, in order for them to, to be at their very best or in order for, you know, me to help them get there or, or be there. And so we had all those really good conversations uh, from the very beginning, you know? So for example, you know, you know, Brad's, you know, what do you need? What sort of communication? We, you know, how, like, do you want me to say something or do you like to, to have someone, you know, say something to you, you know, before you throw or as you're coming down or, you know, same thing with Mark and, and, and Jeff, it's just getting, gaining an understanding of what they need. Um, and when they need it. And so we had all those really good conversations so that, you know, once we stepped on the ice and, and, and had our first game as, as a new team, um, that was understood and, and already talked about. Um, and, uh, you know, that way, you know, there's still some, you know, there's still, there's still some, you know, little things where you're, as a new player, especially, you're, <clears throat> you're trying to sort of figure out because sometimes, you know, depending on the situation and what's going on, you have to just be able to have, you know, be able to read sort of the situation, the emotions that are happening. So I, I think there I'm, I'm still learning a little bit, um, but I would say it, it's definitely getting um, better in the sense of I have a lot more um, sort of comfort just, you know, now playing a number of events and starting to get the guy, get to know the guys a little bit better, more so like on the ice in terms of, you know, how things are uh, operating and you know depending on what's going on you know what to say and what not to say and you know what to look out for and you know that sort of thing so there's a little bit of learning there but all of that was talked about before we stepped on the ice and so that was that was really easy I mean communicating is certainly a key piece and there are some new teams out there that I know for a fact don't spend nearly as much time discussing communication as some people might think I know for I can speak for myself where even with with you know the team that I you know the, the team that I was on before we had played together for so long right and and you and for you know three of us me Ryan and Brad we were family members so we knew each other really really well and um, and you 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 learn kind of quickly what to say what not to say and like I said when to say it but there's also times too where it you know sometimes it's it's hard, right? Because you don't want to really hurt someone's feelings or, you know, you don't want someone to sort of take something the wrong way. And, but we learned within our team, within, you know, my previous team that sometimes you have to have those hard conversations and, and even more importantly, you know, it, it's much easier to, you know, to kind of say how you feel and what you need um, so that it's out on the open before, you know, rather than having to have that hard conversation because you didn't. Um, and so I know for myself, that was something I brought to, to the table with the team right away. It was like, Hey, Hey guys, like before we step in nice, just so you know, like, this is what I need. This is what I need from you. 
um, you know, when I'm on the ice, you know, whether, you know, it's pre-shot routine or information. So for, as an example, I said to the, you know, to Mark and, and more importantly, Mark and Jeff is, you know, unless I'm asking for information before I throw it, I don't need anything. Like, I don't really need you to tell me what the speed is or what that spot's doing. You may say it, but I might ignore you because I'm I'm not really listening. I'm, I already sort of have it in my head and, and I'm just going through my routine as to how I want to throw it. But if I am asking, it's because I want to know. Um, so even just like little things like that, and you know, that's for me personally, how I like to operate. It's like, if I'm not asking, I already kind of have it set in my head as to how I want to throw it or, or what that, you know, what the speed's going to be like. Um, but if I don't, then I'll ask. And, and so it's just little things like that, that we we're able to talk through and, and, and sort of get right out in, in, in the open um, before we even stepped on the ice. And I think a lot of that goes to the experience that we all have, but it definitely goes to the, the side of things in terms of how that team operates, where it's, you know, everything is, is thought through and there's a ton of attention and detail that, that goes into every piece of, of how they play and how they prepare. And finally, EJ, you just mentioned how long you'd played with your brother Ryan and cousin Brad Jacobs. How strange was it when the three of you hung out over the summer and you didn't need to have conversations about the upcoming season, what events you wanted to play, and how you would end up uh, setting up your season schedule? Yeah, a little bit different. I mean, I, I think, well, I definitely would be lying if I said that it wasn't, right? I mean, Ryan's obviously my brother, and, you know, we're not only is he my brother, but you know, my best friend, I, I, you know, he was my best man at, at my wedding. I was his and, and um, same with Brad, like we're all, we're all just really, we're family members, but we're really, really good friends. And so we spend a ton of the summer um, together, right. Just like our families and, and hanging out. And, and so that was awesome. Not that I expected it to be any different, but you know, just because we weren't playing together anymore um, didn't mean that, you know, it was going to change anything on, on the personal side. And, and it didn't. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't weird in that sense or, uh, you know, we really didn't think about it because we we're just so focused on the summer and just enjoying ourselves and, and sort of, you know, not really thinking or, um, or talking about curling. I would say, you know, once we started sort of getting into the season and, and starting to sort of think about it and, and plan for it and then start to play, you know, that was, that was definitely, you know, a little, a little different because especially, you know, Brad's a little different cause he's, he's not competing. So I don't see, you know, see him, um, you know, at, at a competition as an example, but to see Ryan out there on, on a different team and, you know, on a different sheet, um, yeah, that was, that was a little, that was a little different. Um, but it's nice too, because, you know, I'm, I'm cheering for, for Ryan, um, anytime that he's on the ice and, you know, anytime that he's playing and we're not, I'm, I'm always watching. I've, you know, watched every game that, that he's played that we weren't a part of when it's on TV. You know, I watched yesterday when they played Schuster and I watched uh, the points bet final. And um, I watched the other slam final that, that we weren't in and, and um, you know, cheering for him and wanting to see uh, him do well. Uh, and that's always going to be there um, for me, uh, you know, until we play each other, which hasn't happened. It's been lined up. It's, it's lining itself up almost every single event. And it just doesn't seem to, to come to fruition yet um but definitely i i know that time will come um and now you know though i'm sure there'll be different emotions um when that happens but um it's all good uh it's you know it's it's something that's uh gonna have to happen and and uh, will happen very shortly and 
I'm sure, uh, you know, Ryan and I will have a few laughs about about that after. Uh, maybe not directly after the game, because whoever wins is going to be pretty happy. Whoever doesn't, probably, you know, there's bragging rights, one up on, on uh, sort of the family battle. Um, and then with uh, with Brad, he's been extremely supportive, too. You know, I always uh, talk with him again and, and see him a lot. He's already come out to hold the broom for me and, and, and help me um, uh, practice and, and work on some things that, that we talked about earlier. You know, I see him when where our sons are in different uh, sporting activities together, and, and he's always asking how things are going, and and uh, and I'm you know asking him how the the mixed doubles is going, and we're having lots of conversations about that. So it's it's been so great in terms of just the support that we all have and love that we have for for one another, and wanting to see um, each other do well, regardless uh, of the fact that you know we're not you know, competing with one another and alongside of one another anymore is. Yeah, the support and, and sort of the respect and love um, for for each other is that's that doesn't change. Um, so it, it's it's been really really cool and and really easy um, actually um, in comparison to you know what others have to go through or do go through when when changes are made. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Jeff Smith and EJ Harden for joining me this week. Next week. Our focus will shift to the Canadian Mixed Championship and this week's World Curling Tour event. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.